Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. A lot of people feel like they've seen and done everything there is to see and do in their local area. They're bored of their daily routine and contemplate going off on some grand adventure in an exotic locale. My guest would say that you don't actually have to wait until your next big trip nor go far afield to mix things up, and that adventure can be found right where you are in your ordinary routines, the everyday landscape of your life, and even DIY projects if you decide to approach them in a different way. His name is Bo Miles, and he's an Australian filmmaker who documents his own small-scale adventures on YouTube, as well as the author of The Backyard Adventurer. Today on the show, Bo shares his experiments in proving anything can be fused with the challenge, intrigue, and fun which mark adventure if you add in some intentional risk, difficulty, and simple what-the-heck quirkiness. He tells about some of the closed-to-home adventures he's executed, including walking and kayaking his 90-kilometer commute to work, reconnecting an old, long, closed-down rail line by running its often hidden overgrown path with a shovel in his hand, and making a paddle with scavenged wood. We then talk about how he created a gastronomical adventure for himself by eating his body weight in beans, and even turned tackling his to-do list into an adventure by pairing the crossing off of its entries with running a marathon in 24 hours. Along the way, Bo shares how backyard adventures help you better get to know your local area, how he deals with the police who sometimes check in on what he's up to, and how the next time you get some odd idea, you ought to just go for it, mate. Out of the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash backyardadventure. Bo joins you now via clearcast.io. Bo Miles, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. So you, uh, you're an interesting guy. You make YouTube videos of yourself going on these, planning and executing these crazy close to home adventures. But before that, you were a college professor. So I'm curious, how did you shift from college professor to a guy who's documenting the adventures he's going on on YouTube? Well, in truth, I never really stopped doing the filmmaking gig when I was at the university at Monash. And so it was always kind of a a hobby that crept into being more than a hobby. And luckily I got made redundant. So I didn't really get fired, but I suppose I got fired and that made my, my choice clear. I'm just going to go off and be a filmmaker full time, which was kind of liberating, to be honest. After the shock of not having a, a solid paycheck for a few days, I thought, you know what, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. So away I went and look at this parts bread of my job and as an outdoor educator that I really miss. I miss guiding, I miss students. I miss going to the tea room with a whole bunch of workmates and, and having a cup of tea in the morning. I think that, that was really it was one of the best parts of my day. But, you know, I've got a small family now and a, and a great little business working with a, a great colleague. So I've landed with my bum in honey and, and life's <laughs> good, mate, and I'm just going to keep making films. So, you, yeah, you were a professor of uh, outdoor education. So you've, you've basically, you've been doing outdoor stuff for a lot of your life, correct? 
Yeah, I left school at the age of, well, 18. I was a school leaver. Uh, and instead of going to university, I did an outdoor education traineeship and then went to university. And so I was able to work all through university as a guide and as a builder part-time. So they were my two kind of work incomes and, and making pizzas on the side. So I had a few streams of income through university, but it was always sort of outdoor related. And it sort of took off from there. And so while you were a professor doing outdoor education, you started making these videos of you just doing stuff that you just think is normal, right? Like you just, you know, building things from scrap wood, just doing crazy stuff. But what, what's, what I like about what you do is the adventures you do are close to home. You're not going up Mount Everest. You're not doing the typical, like going to Patagonia or whatever. Why do you think it's important for people? Because it seems like it's what you're trying to do. You're trying to help people broaden their, their definition of what an adventure is. Yeah, look, I've never sat down and thought about it, Brett, in a sense of, all right, let's make a list of what I'm really trying to do as this so-called backyard adventurer because, heck, you know, people have been doing backyard stuff and localised forms of, of anything and everything forever. I suppose my point of difference is, is that I'm doing it as a storyteller, but I'm really doing it because, one, it serves a practical purpose of being closer to home and more bang for buck. I'm really into this whole more bang for buck thing because... We all have 168 hours a week and I'd rather not spend them on a plane or in a car. So why not do as much as I possibly can from my doorstep? But secondly, too, the big thing that's kind of hit me in this sort of emerging middle age is that uh, I want to learn more about my local area because there's so much of my local area I think I know about, but I, I just don't. And you don't have to go far from your doorstep or from your own property to realize that, man, every little creek and alleyway and old train line and edge of town. These are all super interesting places that have something to offer. And if you create some sort of quirky idea around a so-called adventure, then you can go out and you can you can challenge the heck out of yourself. You can find out cool stuff and you can have a bloody good fun doing it, you know? And, and that's, that's a big three in my book. If you can check those three off, challenge, intrigue, and fun all in one hit, then boom, you know, you've got yourself a combo and, and I love it. So is that your definition of adventure? If you have that challenge, intrigue, and fun, is that what needs to yeah, be? Yeah, maybe. I think I think I might have just come up with a big three. That might be my yeah. next book, mate. But yeah. um, yeah, I think so. If if you if those three things are percolating through your your system as you're traveling on that particular day, then yep, ripper. You know, you've you've signed off on this really cool day, and it's. I mean, what a great thing! Imagine going to your regular work day and have all of those three things checked off, and. At my time at a university, I would virtually never sign off all of those three things on any given day unless I was in the field, So, which was only 50 days each year in the end, and the rest of it, I'm behind a computer screen like anyone else. So I get to live and die by my own sword a bit more as a filmmaker instead of being stuck up in a university. And one thing I noticed that you, you did with a lot of your adventures, your backyard adventures that you would do, is that you would you would increase the adventure level by increasing the risk by maybe not planning or preparing as much as maybe you should have, right? So if I'm going to, we'll talk about something like, you'd be like, well, I'm going to walk to work and we'll talk about what that looked like. Instead of packing a whole bunch of stuff, it was like, well, what can I do with just the bare minimum? And that increased the intrigue factor significantly. Totally, mate. Yeah. So it's all about fiddling with your ingredients and to come up with kind of a, a rule book of what you do. And that can make you back out adventuring as hard as those sort of Everest things that you're talking about. And, and look, that's not watering down Everest. Everest is hard. But but so is going down your old boyhood river if you do it with really basic fundamentals. It's, it was that it was hard. I, I spent four days going down this river that sort of uh, that 
tracks through my entire history and it was it was a freaking hard four days it was really tricky and so yeah I think the rule book thing is really important because walking off to work for you know two days with all the bells and whistles in a fancy backpack and you're instantly doing kind of an underwhelming bushwalk then or a, or a trek or a hike whereas if you don't take anything man you've got to you've got to look around and you've got to make stuff you've got to observe you've got to be switched on in a particular way otherwise you're going to go thirsty and hungry and have a real crap time and I'm I'm not I'm never setting out to do these things to have a crap time ever I want to have a really insightful fun challenging time all right let's talk about that that adventure you want where you walked to work from home now a lot of people they walk to work from home, but how is your walk different? Yeah, well, I um, this is when I commuted, right, mate? So this is this is why I'm living the good life now, not commuting anywhere. I just come down the road to my mate's studio. But I used to drive 80 kilometers a day one way. So 160 kilometers a day or 100 miles a day, I'd drive my old ute to the university and back. And it was mostly country roads. And I, and I look, I quite enjoyed the drive. It was a good way to sort of get into the day and unwind at the end of it and listen to the radio and whatnot listen to the watch the seasons go by but it's a long time to spend in a car you know I was still doing that at least three days a week so anywhere between six and ten hours a week I was in my old ute driving across the country land to get to the university and I remember one day thinking gee I kind of know these these grounds I know my commute really well I'd stop on apple trees on the side of the road and get fuel sometimes and a coffee at a coffee van at the airport and it was, it was kind of fun, but I don't know them well. I, I know them in a commute way where I know them five metres from the roadside. So, yeah, I decided to walk to the university and away I went and it took a few days and I, I had nothing with me other than the clothes on my back. I didn't even wear shoes the first time I did it, which was far more challenging than I thought and I had to put on a, a, a spare pair at eight kilometres with the cameraman. Yeah, and, and so I, I just ate whatever I found on the side of the road, which I thought would be far more plentiful. I thought people would be throwing out more you know, burgers and half-eaten bananas and whatever, and it just was nothing. You know, I've, I've run forever and I'm always finding food on the side of the road that people have thrown out, but there was nothing. And roadside foraging is pretty minimal too, you know. There was a few clover leaves and rose bushes and fiddleheads and little things with that are barely barely have a calorie to them. So I was always after something that was disused or, or thrown out by humans and it was it was tough. I was freaking hungry, but... um. Yeah, two days later, I, I turned up to work pretty dishevelled and on one occasion I just, you know, got to work and had a cup of tea and thought, wow, that was it and then I had to drive home again and the other one I had to give a lecture. So it was an excellent experience of I kind of wanted to give my students a total window into the other side of an adventure as raw as it can be. So I walked in and I'm stinking up the high, to high heaven and dehydrated and away I go. So it was fascinating. So it took you two days. So how many how many miles a day were you doing? Uh, doing about thirty miles a day. So um, just ticking along, you know. Just it was super easy flat walking. It was on a highway, so it's the easiest kind of walking a human can do, basically at sea level along the side of a highway. But what it doesn't really, and and what the film only does half a job of showing is just how noisy and how uh, kind of deadened the world is via a highway. You know, one, there's roadkill everywhere, but two, you can't, your, your sensors don't work like they would usually because of the road noise. Road noise is really oppressive. And so you just have this hundred decibels of road noise constantly coming at you. So I put carpet insulation in my ears and tried to hum songs and there would be these lovely brief moments of silence where there's not a car for a 
20 seconds and you'd, and you'd really realise it and you'd hear a bird song or you'd hear a distant farmer or a distant something and it was quite unique. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a hell of an experience. I, I slept by a um, petrol station in the blackberries and the gorse, you know, this off to the side where no one was going to come looking for me other than potentially males having a leak in the middle of the night. And yeah, I got up the sparrows the next morning and walked into work. So your food was your, whatever you could find. What about water? What did you do about water? Oh, I was just opportunistic, mate. I'd, I'd drink water out of cow troughs or whatever water I could find in the on the side of the road. And and the big one, which people are disgusted by, is old Coke bottles and Pepsi cans or whatever. Whatever was a half-drunk bottle of Coke or something, I'd drink the rest. <laughs> in, for some weird way, I, I trusted carbonic acid as being so evil that I thought, oh, it's not going to have any pathogens in it. I'll just drink, I'll just drink someone's leftover Coke. And it was one, it was calories, and two, uh, I figured, oh, well, maybe no, no, no baddies are living in this water, and it seemed to work. So besides the, the noise factor that you discover, because you, you can't hear that when you're in your car, right? You don't know there's a lot of noise going on outside. What else did you learn about your environment? Because that's that you said earlier, that's one of the reasons why you want to do these backyard adventures, see your local world in a different way. What did you learn about your environment walking it instead of driving it? Well, I mean, what you're doing is, you, so when you drive, you generally, you've got your your eyes out front and you sort of, you scan the horizon and you're just, you're cruising along, you might be on cruise control, who knows. Generally, when I'm driving that route, I'm listening to the radio and I'm taking intermittent glimpses or, or sort of sound bites of the outside world. You're in this little bubble and we live in this little bubble and we get on with our world and we're often thinking about our to-do list and what's being said on the radio or what song you're listening to or what you had for breakfast, you're very, you're very much not in the place you're driving through, I would say ever, really. You just have little glimmers of it. And so walking is, is kind of the opposite. You can't help but to be very, very present because um, things are fairly abrasive. I was constantly looking for things too. So the fact that I didn't take any of my supplies with me, man, I had to look for everything. I looked for everything from a knife to water to food to shelter. So I had to make my swag that night. And so that took sort of a full day just to find the ingredients of, of to sleep in, you know, old duvets and carpet insulation and old bits of webbing and truck tires and all sorts of stuff to give me some sort of night's sleep, which was really cool. I mean, it means you're occupied and you can't help but to be very there. You're very present. So it was cool. Yeah, I've noticed I've done things in here in my own town, like a go ruck challenge where you're, you know, you're hiking around in the middle of the night for 12 hours with a ruck. And doing that experience had really helped me to get my bearings better about my town. Like I discovered things uh, about how things are located that I otherwise would have wouldn't have known because I just, I was driving by it. But when you're walking it, like you notice, you, you it, somehow like it, it embeds in you more when you're walking the route instead of driving. It's, it's hard to explain. I mean, it's some sort of embodied cognition, maybe. I don't know. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, we're basically traveling at a slower speed. We're able to look in a 360 view. Well, you can't do that in a car. And in a car serving a purpose, a car is miraculous, as is a, a plane, because it gets us to where we're going pretty quick. It's very utilitarian. And so, yeah, when you're on foot, you just you, you go back to this ancient form of thinking and being. You know, it's, it's wayfaring purely because you just have to you have to find your way. And even if it's very basic, like a highway, 
when you're finding things or when you're having to look around and you're still having to do road crossings and you're still getting beeped at by cars, it's still very interactive of the journey and, and all of the ingredients along that passage. So, yeah, I think it just makes sense that you just have to do more and see more and be more present because that's just the form of travel you're doing. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, man, I, I, I want to do that. How would you recommend them going about it? Would you just be like, all right, just pick a distance and walk it? Yeah, kind of, mate. Oh, look, it was fairly practical for me because uh, I was going to work. <laughs> it's amazing how many people chimed in on after watching the film. They say, oh, gee, Bo, didn't you get sacked from your job that you took so long to get to work? And I think, oh, that's a very practical thing to think. <laughs> I think one of the days was a, uh, a weekend day. So I was technically only sort of half a day work late. But, yeah, it was – It was. Uh, look, for uh, I, I suck at recommending things, Brett, because – People have so many things to do in their own to-do list, but you've got to, I think a lot of people think weird things as well and think up quirky ideas, but they just don't do them because their life is so busy around them or they they think that they'd be a kook or disallowed from their friendship group, I don't know, or they'd miss soccer practice that night, I'm not sure, but yeah, next time you have a weird idea, just try and, you know, try and do it try um, to make it and remove some of the layers that you might have probably put to those things you know don't take all of your all of the things that will make it easy just leave them at home and, and you know what you're, you're going to have an adventure because of it right you can always bring a smartphone a cell phone to if you need a bell out for whatever reasons it's like that's like yeah your, turn the sucker off and put it as as far away as possible in the back pocket or, or or with someone that you trust or you leave it at the 20 mile mark whatever but um yeah try and have as few outs as possible force your own hand and so I often force my own hand. And if I've got people included, right, so if, if I've got Mitch along filming the event, my my filming partner, then I, if I've cooked up the event and I've got him out of bed real early and I'm doing this thing, then I've got a sense of pride to it as well. I've got I to gotta see this sucker through because other people are involved now. So, yeah, force your own hand. I think that's a good, good idea. All right. So after you walked to work, you decided you're going to get there by kayak. And this river you decided to go down, this is this has played an integral part in your your childhood correct i suppose so mate yeah look i don't think my boyhood river was like the mississippi was to huckleberry finn i don't think it was integral to his day-to-day or my river was integral to my day-to-day it wasn't i'd I'd go down there once every two weeks go fishing or swim in it and it was kind of the threshold of my childhood but it wasn't it wasn't a huge part of my life like other rivers are to some people but it was still always there and i always i know the tarragon you know it was it's 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 at the bottom of everyone's farm. It's where all the water drains to, and it's the one that is your closest to you that drains into the sea. So it sort of becomes this. It becomes your river. Becomes the river that you think is like every other person's river, I suppose. And so when I decided to paddle to work, that was the river to go to. That was my local water body that would get me to sea, which is near where the university is. And so yeah, it became my transport route, and away I went. And this river, I thought I knew, man, it just it just wasn't it wasn't like I thought I knew. Well, it's the interesting thing is that a lot of times you think, well, I'm gonna take a river. People take waterways to get to places faster. Kayaking actually took longer than walking to work. Correct. Yeah. Well, what it says is too. I mean, our roads are so efficient now, uh, and they go straight and they go through mountains or around mountains in the least with the least possible distance, they're remarkable. You're sitting on 60 or 70 miles an hour or 100 k's the whole time because it's just it's this efficient line. Rivers don't work that way at all. They're following the path of least resistance, which is the low ground, which is the longest route. <laughs> it's, uh, 
Yeah, so it, the, the twists and turns in a river are, are full on. And, of course, the river too, it's where all our bad stuff ends up. It's where all our noxious weeds end up. It's where farmers dump their rubbish. It's where it's where whole councils used to dump their rubbish. A whole town would just come to the river and dump their stuff. And so because it had, you know, big big holes, big holes in the earth. And so that's a good spot to fill it. Yeah, so it took you, yeah, it took you four days to get yeah. down the river. How much did you prepare for this? Like how much, did you bring food, water with you in your kayak? Or was yeah. It, yeah, well, you mentioned that before. I sort of hybridized this one. I took I took the bare minimum, but I still took stuff, including a bit of cash. So I knew there was going to be a donut van along the way if he was open. And I knew there was going to be a supermarket when I got to the sea or a little, a little you know, supermarket in a little town there. So took a bit of cash. I took a lot of bananas. I took tins of beans. I did basically didn't take any clothes as such. I took a jacket and a spare set of socks, but otherwise I basically didn't leave my wetsuit for four days, which was gross, but a real experiment. And I heard it was doable. So I thought I'm going to give that a go. And then you slept just wherever you could find, correct? On the side of the river. Yeah. Yeah. I had no set places. I had kind of an inkling where I'd try and get to and they they were all wrong. So I ended up sleeping in spots that were just end of the day or when I got too cold or when it was raining or, uh, you know, that made sense. So yeah, it was grass. I mean, that's such a liberating way to travel as well, where you don't know where you're going to end up. It's just, it's just fantastic. It's, uh, and I, and I don't say that to be optimistic or cliche about I don't, I, you know I don't always want to be Steve Irwin but he was he was a really cool dude because he was always chipper about things because he didn't quite wasn't quite sure what was going to happen and and that's a that's a nice sentiment to embrace well that's what makes life interesting I mean this is a kind of another I think we're, we can get philosophical here like I think one of the things that people in our modern world I think miss out on is that sense of not being in control I think We've kind of just controlled a lot of our what goes on in our life. We can control the climate in our in our house. We can control what stuff we consume. We can control the people we interact with. When you're kayaking, you're kind of at the uh, the whims of Mother Nature. You don't have control, and that that actually feels exciting. Yeah, it was really excellent, mate. For exactly that reason, I came from a university system that I was still working in at the time that is highly controlled. And there are key performance indicators at every turn and you have your, you know, everything's graded. Every time you deliver a class, the student can give you a mark out of one to five. And in saying that too, there were some great freedoms with my university life. But for the most part, you were still part of this big orchestrated objective machine. And to do the opposite to that is to say, stuff it, I'm going to pack a little red kayak and I'm going to try and paddle to work. And there are so many unknowns in that four-day endeavor, which I didn't think would be four days, by the way. I thought it would be two or two and a half at max. So, yeah, I was proven wrong almost 100%. <laughs> I had to double everything, which was really liberating. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. 
Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now back to the show. So at one point in your adventure of looking for adventure near your home, you found yourself running with a shovel along an old railroad line in Australia. What's the story there? Yeah, this is probably, Brett, one of my favorite films because it's of its simplicity and its beauty and its cinematic qualities. It was just a grouse day. I I live close to, similar to the little river, the Tarrago, an old train line that closed down in 1958. My dad went on it as a kid, or at least he remembers it's going past, and my... Um, you know, so there's still very much a generational gap between me and it. But it wasn't long ago that this train line used to run from one town to the other and ran for about 50 kilometres. And I've, I've run on and off patches of this line uh, my whole life, but I've never, I never sort of thought to stitch the whole line back together. Let's create a whole snake out of this thing that I just knew the head of and the tail of. And so... That's what I did. I, I grabbed my shovel, which I thought that was going to be pretty handy for all the blackberries and brambles that I'd see. Took some basic food with me, which was far too basic, to be honest. And off I set and, and had the film crew follow me in the sort of gorilla way for the 10 hours that it took me to get out there. And away I went, basically trespassing all day to to get to the end of the line. And most of the American audience that have seen this film run the line say, Bo, you would have been shot an awful lot if you tried that in the States. And and, and then the, the Scottish or the Norwegian audience chime in and go, yeah, fantastic, this is right to Rome, you know, you're off doing your thing. And Australia's a bit of a hybrid version of that we have. I was certainly doing the wrong thing, but I hope to, do, to have done it with the least amount of animosity towards the landowners. Well, yeah, people don't like, well, here in the States, I know the rail lines are privately owned, so they don't, owners of the lines don't like when people walk the lines for a whole variety of reasons, safety. And then they're, they're, they're afraid that people are going to you know, do things to, to the lines to cause havoc. So the police are usually called when people are seen on the lines. And that happened to you a couple of times. I imagine, did you encounter the police a lot when you're doing these crazy adventures, sleeping outside, walking in places that you normally don't see people walking? And if you do, like, how do you handle the law enforcement? Yeah. So the walk to work, I had the police both times, the paddle, I don't think I saw them with the paddle. I didn't. But, um, yeah, I, I have them. Let's say for every five films I make, I'll get police intervention on one of five. And they're really good in a sense. They, they always take a bit of warming up, the police, because I think what the, often the problem is they have to be quite affronting and direct at the start to sort of see how the person reacts. And, and I'll always react in a very similar way that I know in my heart of hearts I'm never doing anyone any harm, right? So I just I just talk to them and... And then they tend to come down and then you just have a chat and you tell them what they're doing. And and often they're things that I think they don't know if it's illegal or not. So a lot of people in Australia would think it's illegal to hitchhike, for example, but it's just not. You can hitchhike, of course you can. You can, you can ride a horse next to nearly every road in Australia unless it says otherwise. And so there's all these strange bylaws that are out there that I don't think police quite understand. And look, I don't want to exploit that, but in some respects, you've just got to know your rights and away you go and... To be honest, I was amazed that the police let me go that day when I was trespassing on a lot of people's property because in Australia, all the railway lines are owned by the government Okay, and you're not really supposed to go on train lines, but there is an easement that train lines are in and often those easements have got bike paths in them and you know, little nature reserves and all sorts of things. So in Australia, most train lines are sort of considered public lands as long as you're not on the tracks. So I think they probably thought that I was 
probably okay in an old easement and I'm doing my thing and not harming someone. So they, they said, no worries, keep going, mate. Yeah, I thought it was funny when they when you're doing the run along the rail line and they ask you, why are you carrying a shovel? And you, I think you said, well, if I was carrying a machete to cut the blackberries, I think you'd be more concerned about that. So I'm just That's carrying right. a shovel. That's right, yeah, yeah. I, I chose a shovel because it was very agricultural and I thought, oh, well, I kind of look like I'm part of the landscape if I'm lumping a shovel around. If I had anything else with me, then I look like a proper weirdo. So that was kind of <laughs> tactical as well. But it, to be honest, I probably shouldn't have taken a thing. I used it for about 10 minutes and... You know, carrying a shovel for 50 kilometers is, is hard work. Right. And I, I imagine the law enforcement, it adds an element of intrigue or risk to the whole, it's that, uh, that not being in control. And that's, that's part of what makes it, your adventures fun. Yeah. Yeah. And look, we've got a good police force here. And, and I, I know that, yeah, there was chances are that every chance in the world that that day I was going to get pinged. I didn't expect to get pinged so early, to be honest, but, um, yeah, and you just talk your way through it, and and even if they let you go, great. And if not, you've got to modify your journey, and, and I don't mind that either. All right. So what I like about you too, your idea of adventure doesn't just encompass you know hiking, kayaking, sleeping outside. It's also just like making things with your hands could be an adventure. And uh, you made an adventure out of making your own paddle. So tell us about that. How did you turn a you know a simple woodworking project into an adventure? Well, I'd been teaching paddle making for a decade or so at university level where, look, it was very basic and I never really taught much about the making process. I'd really just talk about why it would be important to do something like that or why it's cool. And look, we all use outdoor equipment. And at the time, you know, our university had this huge sheds full of gear, all sorts of goodies. And and you'd never have to make a thing. You just, you just turn up to the shed and you get your 25 things that you've got to use and away you go. But what if you didn't have those 25 things and you had to make some of them or borrow them or, or whatever? And so it becomes a far more complex human scenario when you've got to make something or borrow it from someone else and then deliver it and pick it up and all these things. So that was very important for these particular trips we used to run. And so something like paddle making became a bit of a metaphor for just the importance of equipment and how we just use stuff and how the outdoor sector is so commodified. And so students every year would make a paddle out of whatever wood they could get a hold of that they that they couldn't buy it. They'd have to get it from their granddad's shed or their grandmother's cupboard or on the side of the road or, or wherever. Go and see a hardware and see what pallets were out the front. And so uh, students did this for years and I thought, oh, I could make a film about just making a paddle or I could make a paddle that has a particular story and then I go and paddle with it. So I decided to just use junk wood that I could find between the train station and work that I used to commute to. And so I did that. Yeah, I just made it out of old wood that I could find between my 2.2-kilometre walk between the train station and my office, and away I went. It was great. I loved it, and it's actually one my, I think, my the most underrated film on my channel. I really like it. So what kind of uh, scavenged wood did you end up using? I used beautiful hardwood. I found it like a tree stake from the council. Uh, someone had pulled out a council tree stake and flung it into the train line. So that was that made the shaft, which is the hardest bit to get. And then pallets made the blades with some little timber inlays from some garden edging. And then there was a tree that dropped a limb right outside the shed at work. And so I just chopped it up and made that the handle and uh, coated it in oil and away we went. It was and we went down Mar- the, the Murray, which is Australia's biggest river and the 14th largest in the world. It's where we run a, a program and 
I did a week on the Murray using this junk paddle and that was the little film. And I think the idea I took from that adventure is that you can turn any type of activity into adventure by, again, like going, creating a rule book that you're going to follow where you limit what you can and can't do. And by doing that, it, you know, it increases the intrigue, as you said. Yeah, I think so. And it makes it very personal too, mate. So if it, the more ingredients that you shape yourself, then the more, I suppose, input and output you can have into those day-to-days because, you know, you can go into a, a, a mega outdoor store and you can get yourself everything from a tiny miniature waffle maker to a to a sock darning kit and, and, you know, plasters that could go on every inch of your body with the perfect bend in them, you know. And I think, unfortunately, it's been – there's so much gear that, that – facilitate the outdoors now we often don't have a a really eclectic experience out there because our gear kind of filters that away for us so i think it's really important to create your own rules and really and and pick and choose the gear you take with you so you also made eating an adventure and this one cracked me up because what you did is you decided to eat your body weight in beans and i related to this one because it took me back to the beginning of the pandemic where everyone was, wasn't like everything shut down and no one was sure like can i go to the store are we able to do anything and so you know we were running out of food and i was like well i got this big giant 10 pound bag of pinto beans i'll just cook that up i made a big pot of beans and no one else in my family wanted to eat the big pot of beans. But I just had this pot of beans I'd keep in the fridge. I'd pull out whenever I was hungry and I would just eat a couple scoops. And this went on for like, I went, man, it lasted me a good week. So when I read about your adventure of eating your body weight in beans, it took me back to uh, March 2020. How did John Steinbeck inspire this adventure of eating your body weight in beans? Well, first of all, congratulations on doing that with the Pinto beans. Oh, That's it was excellent. awesome. I love it. I love beans. I think that's just great. I love beans. Yeah, well, I love beans too, and I still do. People ask me that all the time. And and it, one of the big critiques of my film of eating my body weight in beans, which was 190 tins from memory, was that I didn't cook them properly like you did. You had the proper beans that you cooked up yourself, that you made a lovely sauce for or a brine or something, and, and away you go. Whereas I just bought store-bought tin beans and mixed them up and ate as many as I could. I did that for a reason because of the simplicity of it and the fact that I could weigh things and measure things and all that rather than having to do it on the fly. But yeah, the idea came from uh, of going through a bit of I was going through a bit of a Steinbeck phase which seemed to be seems to find a lot of 30-year-old males out there kind of the road tripping romanticized hard life book to read. And and American culture, American sort of 20s, 30s books are always fascinating too. And I read Tortilla Flat and there's a great couple of pages in it where Teresina Cortez, the mother of nine kids with their 10th on the way, basically only feeds her kids beans off the floor with rice or tortillas. And so these little kids were found out to be the healthiest kids in town, even though they were the skinniest and the scrawniest and kind of the you know, they looked like vagrants, but they had strong teeth and strong bones and brilliant eyesight and all their faculties. And so I thought, oh, gee, isn't that fun? And I love beans. What if I just eat beans for an awful long time like these kids? <laughs> and, of course, the the failed part of the experiment was I didn't eat tortillas or rice, which was the carbohydrate or the main carbohydrate because beans, when they come out in a tin form, are basically just a slurry of protein, uh, all the carbohydrates sort of being soaked out of them. But anyway, there you go. So I just ate beans for 40 days and it was it was an awesome experiment where I didn't go anywhere, just an experiment of the body. 
How did what did, what happened to your body subsisting only on beans? Were you as healthy as the uh, the kids in Tortilla Flat? No, no. So <laughs> I ended up with some really good things about my health and some really bad things. So I got tested before, during, and after, and I didn't make that part of the film as much as probably what I should have. But in some respects, it was never about the science. It was all about the felt relationship with it. I, you know, I didn't want this to be a breakdown of numbers. I wanted it to be a breakdown of of both, of, of how I thought of the world and if it changed my worldview in a sense or how I, how I eat. But, yeah, my B12 plummeted to really dangerous levels, whereas everything else was pretty good. So my cholesterol dropped, my weight dropped. I felt really good. I felt like a really lean sort of acute version of myself, and yet my moods couldn't crack above a six or a seven, say, six. So I was never a good version of myself in that respect. So there was some massive downfalls. The other way you up the the intrigue factor was okay. You, you said you ate tens of beans, so you just like you got all varieties of so chickpeas, baked beans, pinto beans, and then you would take the labels off of them. So anytime you opened up a can, it was always a surprise what you're going to get. Yeah, spot on, mate. So I yeah I got two hundred tins of beans from the supermarket. I tried to get low sodium and organic beans, so that was really one of the only rules. And and a big blend. Yeah, exactly like you say, a whole mix of beans and. I had a, you know, there was sort of a hundred of one variety and 20 of another and 30 of another and 10 of another. And then there was some, some blended mixes, which I think there were five in there that were like gold. You know, if I'd hit one of these five varieties that were the tastiest and most exotic beans in a tin, it was amazing. There was one day there that, you know, cause I'm just randomly picking and I had five or six tins a day on average. There was one day there it was mostly black beans, you know, and there was only about 20 black beans in the entire thing. And I thought I'd blended them and mixed them pretty well, but I had bloody black beans all day. And I thought, gee, this is a bit rough. It was the only day where I thought, oh, this is a probably a, a dodgy experiment <laughs> where I stuffed up my blend. But that was good fun too. So have you eaten beans since then? Like, have you, are you sick of beans? Abs- absolutely, yeah. Everyone asks you sick of beans. And so I, I, I never skipped a beat. And in fact, the day after the experiment finished, I ate I ate regular food for a day or really exotic vegetables and fish and whatnot. And the day after, you know, you know what? I was morning beans already. I had a tin of beans on day 42. So, no, I'm not sick of them. Thinking about them being, I love beans. All right. Anyways, so the next one eventually you did is it called Mile an Hour, where you, this is a really interesting thing. You, you did, you completed a task on your to-do list and then you'd run a mile. What, and you did this for 24 hours. What, what's the story behind that? Like why do a task and then run a mile? Well, you introduced me at the start of the show, Brett, as a as an ex ex academic, someone who worked in a university, and and when I was writing my PhD, it was the worst physical shape I've ever been in. I put on a bunch of weight. I didn't leave the house as much as I usually would. I didn't run as much as I usually would. So everything kind of ground to a halt, particularly in the last six months of writing my PhD, which was sort of around 2016, 15 era. And I remember looking outside one day during a particularly long period of writing. I was under the pump to get a chapter finished and I just wanted to be outside running. And uh, I thought, righto, write some more words, mate. Write 500 more words, clock them, you know, make sure you're, you're 500 words to the to the word and then you can go outside. That's your reward mechanism. So I wrote 500 words. They were pretty crap words, but down they go. And, and I get outside, I chuck my runners on and I go for a run around the block. Now, I knew my block was roughly a mile. I didn't realize it was a perfect mile. And that's a, that's a very famous distance. I got back and I'd barely got a sweat up, but I jumped back behind the computer and I felt really refreshed. I thought, this is a cool idea. I'd never run such a short run before. 
And uh, over the course of, I think, a few weeks, I realized that, I, and I kept doing this, I thought that was a really good circuit breaker for writing. And over the course of a few weeks, I thought, gee, when I finish this PhD, when I hand this sucker in, I'm going to run a marathon around my block. And I'm going to do all the things outside that I've been wanting to do for years whilst writing this PhD. So finish off barn projects, finish off all the little niggling housework things that I've been meaning to do that are very easy that you just don't do because they're right under your nose. And so so was born the film and it's probably my most successful idea where I thought oh, I'm going to run around the block and for the 50 minutes each hour that I'm not running around the block, I'm going to do all of these jobs I've been meaning to do. And I filmed it uh, or we filmed it and it was a real great success. It was a great film. So what did you get done that day? I had about 50 things written on a, an old bit of white laminex a bit of kitchen shelving and it got done about 30 odd jobs and it was everything from painting the fence with old sump oil to uh, making the blanks of two paddles. I made a table, pruned the trees, did some lawns, fixed a whole bunch of things I've been meaning to fix, cooked up some some great food for me and the crew and just it was a rolling list of things to do that was sort of endless. It was really great and and you know, in the depth of the night, I didn't feel like doing things that required a whole lot of brain matter. So I'd just do pretty basic things like doing the lawns or, or pruning the, the uh, fruit trees. So it was great. It was a really eclectic, diverse day where I, it was, I was knackered at the end of it. Well, and you also said in the book, you mentioned that that, that that video or that adventure you did inspired a lot of your viewers. Like you had people with cerebral palsy doing their version of mile an hour, like getting a lot done while you know walking and doing something for a mile after they do that task yeah what it was brett was and i've since kind of stumbled upon this what made that idea so successful i suppose one i did it with a sense of fun two it's not overly skill orientated or i didn't have you don't have to be a great runner to do it and what those two things combined allow is a repeatable stunt People can now do it themselves. They can do it in their own way, in their own house, at their own pace, whatever they want to do. And they don't have to do a full marathon. They could do a half or a 10K or whatever and just do a few things in between. And what a great concept. And so what it was was a repeatable thing to do. And then so people copied it. Yeah. And I, I think that's another, just a great example of how you can turn you know anything into an adventure, uh, whether it's a daily routine or like a DIY project or your commute by just mixing up how you approach it and by adding you know, some additional challenge to it and just being creative. Well, this has been a great conversation, Bo. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, YouTube's really good. Just type in Bo Miles YouTube, but otherwise my website will steer you in all sorts of directions. So bomiles.com, it's got my book up there and all the film links and a bit of bio about me and a bit of, you know, whatever else on there. And then, but YouTube, yeah, YouTube's gold. So Boisms on Insta. If you want to jump on Insta, I, I do some Insta stuff and I need to do more. I need to be more a social beast, but I'm so busy making content that I sometimes forget about the socials. But yeah, Boisms on Insta, BoMiles YouTube and BoMiles.com. All right. Well, Bo Miles, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brad. It's been uh, excellent. And I, uh, I wish you well in Oklahoma, mate. Thank you. My guest today was Bo Miles. He's the author of the book, Backyard Adventure. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, make sure to check out Bo's YouTube channel. Just search Bo Miles on YouTube. His videos are really well done. A lot of fun to watch. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash backyardadventure. We find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles and over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on list the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama.